Hello there, I'm Niall Brown and welcome to this episode of the Movies in Focus podcast. This time around I'm joined by iconic master of horror Mick Garris. Mick has ticked nearly every creative box there is in the film industry, from his beginnings working in the Star Wars production office through to his work on Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories and his many Stephen King adaptations including the Smash miniseries The Stand and The Shining. He's also the creator of the groundbreaking Masters of Horror television series and the host of the brilliant podcast Postmortem. Mick is a man with a lot of great stories to tell, and you'll find them all in Abby Bernstein's book, Master of Horror, the official biography of Mick Yaris. I had the chance to chat with Mick about the book, his career as a filmmaker, and also his work as a short story writer and novelist. Often called the nicest guy in horror, I can fully attest to the fact that not only is he a great talent, but he's also a great guy. I had a blast chatting with Mick, and I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. How are you? I'm great, Mick. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm actually a, a tiny bit intimidated because you're one of the best pod show uh, that there is. So it's, uh, it's all about the guests. It's not, <laughs> the podcast is good because I have good people on it. That's all. But no, um, I, again, you're such a great character you know your, your, your career has been amazing and to have you here is just fantastic and especially off the back of this book which is all about you so uh which is a very bizarre feeling as you can imagine for somebody who's been behind the scenes for all my life and career um it's really a weird thing that anyone would be interested in a book about me and what i do how did it come about? How, how, how were you approached about it? And how did that happen? Well, I've known Abby Bernstein, the, the uh, writer, for like 40 years, from when I was a publicist back in the 80s, the early 80s. And she was a journalist for various magazines and publications before there were websites. <laughs> and so we became friends. And uh, she became a screenwriter and we were represented by the same agent for a while and all that sort of thing. And uh, so she had asked me for a few years about doing uh, a biography on me. And I just kind of laughed it off because I, I, I couldn't take that seriously. Then she came back and said, look, I've got a publisher who's really eager to do this. He thinks it would be a great book. And I said, if you've got a publisher and you think you can make an interesting book out of it, then I'm happy to, but, uh, but my mother's dead. So I don't know who's going to buy it. <laughs> but you're one of those characters that the, the people actually adore. You've got a huge cult following. So. They're, oh, they're, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think there, I mean, your, your podcast's hugely successful you're, and there's a lot of adoration for your work out there. So there's, you know, yeah. that, it's it's nice, you know, because we do our our work for the public. It's it's not done for ourselves, although obviously, if it's not gratifying to yourself, then it's not going to be gratifying to a public. And it is amazing when something that you create connects with an audience in a personal way. And so I, I'm incredibly grateful to have had a career that had some of those touchstones in it. And when Abby approached you, what was the process? How many interviews did she do with you? And, and how did she craft your life story? 
Well, she decided to do it in chapters that had to do with each of the projects. So, you know, it would be The Shining, it would be The Stand, it would be Masters of Horror, but do it chronologically. And even before I was making movies and television, back in my old journalism days, back in my band days when I was a rock and roll singer and the like. But um, so she structured it in a chronological sense. And basically she would come over and we would talk about each of those subjects individually. So every chapter was an interview uh, or more if it was a particularly big one, like Masters of Horror, I think we did two interviews because that's 26 shows, even though I only wrote four of them and directed two of them. But that was the process. And what was it like looking back on your life and, and everything that you've achieved? How did that feel? Well, it's sort of like looking at my IMDB page and going, I did all that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it was really wonderful because virtually every one of those productions or, or chapters in my life was incredibly enjoyable and lucky. You know, um, you can't have a career in, in filmmaking or as an author or as a painter or as a musician without a tremendous amount of luck and opportunities that open doors for you. So it was amazing to go back. You know, I, I'm not that reflective a person generally. I like to be moving forward. Um, but it was really gratifying to go back and, and remember those roots and, and the people who opened doors for me and the people I was lucky enough to work with and, and the work that I got to do, you know, a lot of it was a work for hire. A lot of it was generated by my, my own projects and the like. And so the, the variety of experiences was really fun to, to go back through. And Abby was really great at taking me back to those places because she, she's known me the whole time that I've been doing this since before I was a filmmaker. And so she has personal experience of it all along the way as well. And looking back, knowing that you came from your journalism background, then you went into the, the publicity element and then the, the filmmaking. Did you, did you look back and think, maybe do I wish I'd stayed in the journalism? Do you wish you'd stayed in the, the publicity or are you just very happy at how it all went? Oh God, no, do I not wish I'd stayed in either of those things, <laughs> particularly publicity. I wasn't very good at it. I had some really good ideas and, and did it for a while, but it was a means to an end. With publicity, I really wanted to learn about filmmaking and, and not just the technical process of filmmaking, because I certainly couldn't have afforded to go to film school, but how movies were made, were marketed, you know, I would hire myself to do making ofs. And that was one way I learned how to turn pieces of film into a narrative that didn't necessarily have one. There's no script for a making of documentary, but you formulate that from the footage that you're able to shoot. But I'd been writing since I was 12 years old, short stories and the like. And so in my 20s, I started writing screenplays and wrote a lot of them, but nobody ever saw them and I didn't know how to get them out there. But um, doing publicity actually opened a door to, to a, an industry 
that I was very much an outsider from. I'd done journalism. I'd written about movies and interviewed filmmakers. I'd written about music and interviewed musicians and the like. But actually, the, the process of writing a screenplay or directing a movie was something that you, you learn trial by fire. And just going very back to the start, what started your, your love of writing and, and stories? Where, where did that all stem from? I was a big reader when I was a kid from a very young age. I mean, first comic books and the like, and I, I watched a lot of television. I, I wanted to be an artist. My father was a trained artist who never was able to make his living at it, but he was quite good. He went to art school and could have made a go of it if he'd had the opportunities. But I gave up drawing. Uh, I inherited some of his talent for that, but I started seriously writing at about 12 years old. And it's because I was a big reader. I, I devoured everything by Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson and everything that was out there, Poe, uh, usually in the Outre. But, um, uh, and so writing felt natural to me and it seemed that I had an affinity for it. Um, I was a bit of a mimic, you know, I could imitate people really well when I was a kid and did it a lot. But I think that mimicry also led to reading good literature or even bad literature, and I read plenty of that, led to me as a writer, I would take on the persona of other writers who impressed me or the characters that they wrote until I found my own voice much later on. But uh, I've always had a facility with words and was um, always writing short stories, almost always with O. Henry kind of dark uh, surprise endings that, um, you know, was great for O. Henry, not so great for Garris. <laughs> <laughs> and do you prefer the prose? I mean, obviously you write screenplays and you, you are a filmmaker, but even now when you, you write, is, is prose your first love when you sit down to write something? You know, I, I love them both and they're both a very similar process. Um, Prose is much more uncensored uh, and it's much more internal. I, I use this example a lot, but Richard Matheson, the great Richard Matheson once said to me, prose is internal and film is external. So I'm, I, I love writing in the first person when I'm doing my fiction because it is so personal and you know, hopefully brave because you go places you wouldn't go, uh, you wouldn't open up to with people uh, that you're having a lunch with. But, um, but I love them both. You know, I'm a child of the media. I grew up with television from, from my earliest days and movies going to the drive-in and uh, that sort of thing in my, in my youth. So I love them both. They're, they just are a little bit different. Um, when I'm writing a screenplay, I'm entirely in that mode and I love it. When I'm writing fiction, usually it's a palate cleanser after having months of working on a project where you're working six days a week and 14 hour days and on location and you haven't been home on the stand. I was away from home for a year. And you know, those those are demanding things. And making movies is so social and external as well. Uh, and writing the movies has to try and find a way to make the internal external and visual. So it's much more of a vacation to write fiction and prose and, and the occasional books that I do. 
do you write every day still or no. you just no? No, I, I used to. Um, well, I never wrote every day other than when I was working, but for a long period of my career, there was one project after another project after another project. I'd be in post on one and in prep on another. Um, those days have slowed down a bit. The, the industry is much different. Um, my choices have, uh, I've limited my choices a bit uh, in my gray years, but um, I'm always doing something, you know, every day. If I'm not writing, I'm doing a podcast or I'm, you know, trying to plan, uh, you know, Clive Barker and I are creating a new series together that we hope will will uh, get traction soon. So always ideas and travel before COVID, I was going to at least a half a dozen film festivals around the world every year and usually more than that. So all of that somehow made me an ambassador of horror <laughs> that was never an intended consequence. But, but you know, they're all things that that I am so lucky to to be able to participate in these things internationally. And you've just touched on it being an ambassador of horror, but and obviously you've written a lot uh, of horror, and obviously made shows and films. But do you feel that as a writer, maybe you wanted to go off into a different tangent, a bit more drama, maybe a thriller, or is it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, not all of my fiction is in the horror genre. My second novel, Salome, is my noir novel. It is a Hollywood desert noir murder mystery. There are horrific elements to it, but none of them are supernatural. There's nothing in the realm of what can't happen. It's a very personal kind of uh, contained um, human uh, suspense novel. And it, it came out a while ago, but just last year, um, they, I published a, a collection that includes Salome and uh, four of my novellas called um, These Evil Things We Do. And uh, so it is an example of what I do when I'm not writing for the screen. And now you've touched on your show with Clive Barker. Is that something that you're co-writing or is it pretty much Clive Barker's material? Yeah, we're creating it together, but Clive has written 10 original stories just for this series. And so I will probably uh, write the screenplays of some of them or co-write the screenplays of some of them with Clive. But we primarily will, will have British uh, screenwriters and all UK filmmakers uh, doing the show if and when. You know, our, our fingers and toes are all crossed, but <laughs> you never know what's going to happen uh, in the world of television and, and films. Uh, they happen for the least likely reasons and they don't happen for the even more unlikely reasons. So you never know until you're calling action. I can imagine and now that things are changing so much, especially with streaming and everything else, what's it like as a filmmaker going into that and, and knowing that things are changing so rapidly? Well, it's changing rapidly and mostly for the better because there are so many more platforms and so many more shows and films being made. But it's also difficult for independent filmmakers because there's so much of it 
everyone has access to the tools of filmmaking. They, they can make a really high quality film on their iPhone, like Steven Soderbergh showed, um, and post it on your MacBook or something. So, but the outlet for that, making a living as an independent filmmaker is incredibly difficult because if, if Netflix finances your film, that's one thing, but if they pick up your film and it was a film that you made for a hundred thousand dollars, um, you will probably get paid less than half that for the streaming rights. So as a producer, Amazon and Netflix and Apple Plus and TV Plus and all these other streamers are great. <clears throat> but in terms of distribution of independent product, it's become even more difficult to find a home. And even if you do find a home, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you let an audience know that your film is there? So it's complicated. It's good news, bad news, but it's always been that way, but now even multiplied tenfold. It is because as a film reviewer, I get so, so many emails from independent filmmakers going, Would you I bet please that you do, you know, <laughs> and yeah. sometimes you look at them and you go, well, I'm not going to review it because you'd wish I wouldn't, you know, yeah, you know, but you, you feel sorry for these people because there's so many people trying to get their name out there and their film out there. And even if it's on Amazon, they know that it, you could spend three days looking for it and it would never be fine. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't envy you your role as a film critic, because even as someone who wants to consume as much of the material, particularly genre material as possible and going to festivals around the world and being exposed to things that I would other not, otherwise not be exposed to, there's so much product out there. And like I said, the good news, bad news. The good news is anybody can make a movie and the bad news is that anybody can make a movie. That's it. And <laughs> I'm so glad the, uh, the find footage phenomenon of the last few years has sort of died down slightly because... Oh, God, yes. Yeah, I've, I've, to me, the only thing worse than another zombie movie is a found footage zombie movie. I know. That's not <laughs> to say there aren't good ones. Um, you, you know, uh, uh, first, what is it? One Cut of the Dead is yes. the most amazing quote, found footage, zombie movie ever. It's brilliant. It is a work of genius and impossible how it was made. But in general, found footage is usually because you don't have a budget and zombie is because everybody wants to try and make a hit zombie movie and uh, enough already. Yeah, enough five years ago already, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And... With regards to low-budget movies, have you ever been tempted to grab your iPhone and go out and, and shoot something low-budget or do like a Blumhouse film or something like that? You know, uh, I've, I've thought about it, but I'm kind of spoiled because I want the, the crew people I've worked with, the artisans, the technicians, the actors, I don't want to not pay them. I don't want to, to you know, I, I'm in three unions, uh, you know, I'm in the Directors Guild, I'm in the Writers Guild, I'm in the Screen Actors Guild. And they exist for a reason so that artists are not taken advantage of. And it would be fun, but to get the production value I would want, I really would need to, to get 
professionals that I've worked with. And I, I would never ask people who make their living with their craft to do something at a very, very limited range uh, because they deserve the best. Now, the closest we did with that was, um, was Nightmare Cinema which was made very inexpensively, but still it cost $2 million. But we had a lot of really top-notch cast and crew who did it out of love. You know, we paid them their guild minimums and, and their salaries and the like, but um, they did it at a much lower price than usual because they were our friends and they loved the idea of how we were doing it. But that's by far the lowest budget project I've ever done. That whole movie cost what, one episode of Masters of Horror cost. And speaking of Nightmare Cinema, is there going to be a sequel? We hope so. We were talking with Shudder about it. They were very enthusiastic about it, <clears throat> but I know that they are making a couple other anthology films. One of our ideas was for Nightmare Cinema 2 to be all female directors, all um, uh, mixed ethnic directors, Asian and Black and the like. Um, and they are doing a Black horror anthology. They're doing an all-woman horror anthology. So um, we have plenty of ideas to do it. The hope is still there. Right now, it's not active. One of the scripts is written for the four. We would do four stories instead of five. Um, but there are other things that we're working on uh, that are taking precedence at the moment, like Clive Barker's Theater of Blood. And I've just optioned a, a, a screenplay of my own to a production company that we're going out uh, to see if we can get that set up. And it's only marginally a genre film, but it's uh, it takes place in 1936 right. during the Depression. And it's a really interesting, it's it's maybe my favorite script I've ever written. And when should we, hopefully, if we crossed our fingers here about that? Well, let's see when we get it set up. It could be, uh, it'll be a while. It'll, it's in its nascent stages. So. And as somebody who's incredibly creative, what's it like dealing with the business aspect of movie making? It can be great or it can be awful. In the case of um, doing the Stephen King projects, it allowed us to have an 800-pound gorilla in between me and the business end. You know, nobody is going to say to Stephen King, uh, you know, we want to cut this and this and this and this. When he wrote the screenplays for The Stand and the Shining miniseries, when he was really involved, um, he was the best partner you could have. But you learn how to deal with with people. And sometimes the business end has a good idea. Um, <clears throat> not all the time, but when they do, you want to embrace it because you want them to be your willing partner, not your unwilling partner. You want to be somebody they want to work with and be reasonable about it. And if you don't agree with something that they want, to be able to intelligently, specifically tell them the reasons why your way is better or come up with an even better way that embraces their thoughts. They can be difficult, but most of the time, you know, Masters of Horror, part of the deal was you can get the greatest filmmakers in the horror genre living today to do this, but you can't get in the way. You don't, we won't take your notes. 
uh, or we'll take them, we'll look at them, but chances are nobody's going to follow them unless there's a really good idea there. So that gave us a little bit of power that we also exercised on Nightmare Cinema. But, you know, I, it can be a collaborative business and not all of the business people are, uh, are on the wrong side. They want your movie to be good. They want it to make money, but they want it to be good. And if you can convince them that your way is the right way, they're not unreasonable about that on, on, in the most part. I mean, there are problems. And I've certainly run into times where, you know, uh, a network wants, they're insisting on something shorter and will fill the spot with, with more commercials, that sort of thing. But most of the business I've had to do with the networks and, and the studios has been quite collaborative. And, and it's been almost, I would say 90% positive. And you're someone who's straddled television and film, probably like, few have over the last sort of 30, 40 years, yet you know about how things are censored and cut and everything else along those lines. How does that feel when you're in movie mode thinking you can get away with more or when you're in TV mode where you think you have to kind of keep things a bit more restricted? What's, what's that like for you? Well, it's changed a lot over the years. You know, television has opened up a lot more, especially when you're talking about premium television like HBO or Showtime in this country. Uh, and the streamers, they're not nearly so restrictive uh, about uh, things like that because they don't have to please the advertisers. But you always know what you're doing. You know, when I was writing uh, Hocus Pocus for Disney, I knew I was writing for Disney. And I wasn't going to write in, you know, a sex scene or, or uh, too much in the way of gore and the like, you know, the most we got away with was knocking Billy Butcher's head off and uh, putting it back on in a comical sense. But uh, you just have to be aware and be reasonable and know where you're going. However, in the case of the King miniseries, for example, we knew that The Shining and The Stand, if they were motion pictures, they would have been rated R or restricted to uh, nobody under 17 would be allowed to the theater without uh, an adult. But we had Stephen King's name on it that allowed us to get away with more. And there are times when you want to put in more than you know you need so that you have some bargaining power where you can say, okay, we'll take out this garroting if we can keep this knifing, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so I'll, I'll trade you two garrotings for uh, three zombie munchings. Uh, but uh, so there's a little bit of, of wheeling and dealing to go, but you just have to go in knowing what the medium requires and what you can get away with and what you can't and try to stretch the boundaries if you can. And we were able to with the King projects and with Masters of Horror, other than the Takashi Miike episode, uh, we had no interference whatsoever with, uh, with what we put on the screen, but it was also for a pay TV network and not for a commercial network. And going back to King, the stand, obviously a, a TV phenomenon, What's it like knowing that you helped change how television was perceived at that point in time? Well, the good news was I didn't watch a lot of television at that time. I, I more was interested more in movies and that's what I wanted to make was movies. 
And I even had second thoughts about, should I take this? After I did Sleepwalkers, it opened as the number one movie in the country that weekend. And then of course, the second week it dropped precipitously like many of the genre films do. But did I want to work in television? But the thing was, this script was so great. And Stephen King asking me to do it was such a phenomenal thing. Uh, and it was very high-end television as opposed to low-end features. You know, Sleepwalkers was a $15 million studio movie, and that was about as low as studio movies went in those days. Um, but we knew we were doing something special because the script was special, but we had no idea it would be the highest rated miniseries in television history in the United States. And it became one of those things where the day after it aired, you'd be in a supermarket line and hearing people talking about it. And I'd never had that before. Sleepwalkers was a success, but a theatrical horror film that has a big opening weekend is a success quickly in a very small circle. This was a mainstream success. This was something everybody watched. The reviews were phenomenally good. And I had never had that experience. Everything I'd done before was on a very small scale. And suddenly we influenced, as you said, how television was made, particularly horror on television, because most people who made horror on television didn't love it. They weren't passionate about it. They weren't students of it. They were the same people who made the dramas and the Westerns and the teen shows and all that. They were just screenwriters and directors who worked on the smaller screen. And in this case, I and the makeup effects people and, and everybody involved were passionate about the book. We had King's best-selling book ever as a template. So we knew that there was a potential audience. We never knew how vast it would become. And, you know, until you just said that, I never thought about it being something that did influence how, how horror was presented on television and miniseries and things were made for TV until you just brought that up. Well, it, it's something, I think it's actually the very first TV miniseries that I've ever watched. I think I was about 14 when it aired. And me and my family had never sat down to watch a TV miniseries. And we watched The Stand and we just couldn't wait for each next episode. So it, it, for me, going back sort of 25 years or whatever it is, really stands out in my memory as, as a fantastic piece of television. Uh, that, that's amazing. I mean, there had been huge miniseries before. There was uh, um, Roots was a really big one before that, uh, you know, in the 70s. Uh, and there was North and South and, and uh, Shogun and things like that. But, but this hit in a totally different way. They'd never really, they'd never really taken horror seriously on, on, a, on a large scale like that. And so it was, it was pretty gratifying to, to see it embraced so, so heartily. And another of your King miniseries that I really love is Bag of Bones. Oh, I, I think I think that's phenomenal. I, I remember reading the King book kind of when it came out and then I saw your that you were making the series with Pierce Brosnan and I thought I can't wait to watch and I, I adore that one. Uh, well, it's good to have an Irishman in it, right? Well, do you know why that's the best? And I'm actually a man from Derry as well. So it, it's oh, that's it. <laughs> 
Well, that's another thing. It was not only a King project, but it was a movie star project made for television. And it was not made for a broadcast network. It was made for a cable network for A&E. So it was still a commercial production and we had to keep those things in mind. But, but what I love most about King is when his stories hurt when you can feel the pain of the characters and identify with the pain of the characters. And working with a movie star like Pierce Brosnan was such an honor and he was so much fun to work with. Didn't require much direction at all. And in fact, didn't even want much direction, <laughs> but he knew what he was doing and he was in for a penny, in for a pound. And uh, I think the quality of the actors we were able to draw because of the quality of King's work. Uh, was such a high level that it it changed how people perceived what horror could be. And you've been, and I, I know we're sort of getting to the end of our time, so I'll wrap things up. Um, your career's been so intertwined with Stephen King. Uh, <laughs> what's that like? And also, is there a King project that you would like to do further down the road? Well, we're friends. And we became friends. We first met during the making of Sleepwalkers. And then um, when he asked me to do The Stand, we became friends because he was genuinely the executive producer. He was there for a half or two thirds of the shoot himself on location. He wrote the script. Um, it's an incredible honor, but it's also a lot of fun. Having King on your set is so inspiring and he's like a big kid with a, a toy train set you know he's seeing his book come to life and he's done it for so long now i'm sure but it's still exciting to him now we haven't done anything together since bag of bones and i'm hoping that we will because there's nothing better than working with stephen king but whether we do or not i've done you know seven or eight projects with him now and what a what an amazing experience that is because a lot of people think because I've done so much of King's work that I'm his bitch, that I do his <laughs> that I do his bidding. And nothing could be further than the truth. We we happen to see things in a very similar way. We approach things in a very similar way. And he knows the difference between books and film. And he has never once said to me, I think you should do it this way. Um, now I've gone to him and said, what do you think about this? Or what was in your mind when you wrote this? You know, having him there as a resource is like the greatest thing in the world. But he is ready to give you enough rope to hang yourself. He's never felt like the boss. He's always been a collaborator. And, you know, nothing makes me happier than working with Stephen King. And just as a, as a final question, is there a dream project, either Stephen King on your own, a script you've got shoved in a drawer for 30 years that you, you would like to make, or is it just? Well, this, new, this new script that I'm just setting up called Jimmy Miracle is actually a 30 year old idea that I'd written a version of way back when um, but it's an entirely black cast and it's a black story. So I don't want to direct it. I want to produce it, but want to get a really great African-American director. Um, but I'd also love to make Salome, my novel Salome into a feature. 
Uh, Neo-noir is not particularly big box office these days, but perhaps for a Netflix or an Amazon or an Apple Plus or something. Um, that's a dream that I've been just getting serious about thinking about turning it into a screenplay. Whether it gets made or not, who knows? I enjoy the process of writing on spec regardless. I've written so many things that have never been made or even sold, but that's what writers do, right? Writers write. Exactly. And just when finally, when something isn't made, how, what's the frustration like in that? Or do you just go, that's par for the course? I'm, well, it takes a while to learn that that's par for the course. And at first it, it, it hurts because it's your child and you put all of your heart and soul into it. You know, when I write on spec, it's not something that I think, oh, this is going to be a big hit movie. It's something that I write because I have this idea and I really love it. And I want to write it and then set it up. After you've lost the race a few times, you start to, I don't ever want to become cynical because I've seen so many people, filmmakers and screenwriters and authors who become cynical and it, it bitters their work. And I don't want that to ever happen to me. So I have become more blase about, oh, well, we didn't set that up onto the next one, but they're never gone. They can always come back, tastes change. And, you know, even the things I've written in the past uh, that I thought were great, it's like, you know what, maybe it's better that that didn't get made, but they're always there. And I'll always create new ones, whether they get made or not, just because I love the process. I really like writing and it's why I write books. You certainly can't make a living writing books unless you write huge bestsellers. I mean, it's, it's harder than ever, but I've been fortunate enough to have uh, several books published and, and I hopefully will do more. Well, Mick, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's been a real, real pleasure. I, and I really mean that. Uh, me too, Niall. Thank you. And I love your podcast. Um, I'm a fan of your work and I, you know, I'll keep listening and I'll keep watching. So, so thank you so much for spending the time today. A total pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Movies and Focus podcast. You can download it wherever you get your podcasts, and I hope that you tell your friends about it.